We are going to now move on to the Word of God, and we're going to be in Luke 22, starting in verse 31. We're going to be looking at Peter and his denial of Jesus, a very famous scene. Let me pray, and then, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that we can gather, uh, Lord, that we can worship you freely. Thank you, Lord, for everyone here, God, uh, be it their first Sunday or, you know, long-standing part of the church, God. It is a joy to come together, and Lord, I pray that this would be a really instructive and fruitful time. Uh, I pray, Lord, as we look at uh, this, this epic failure of Peter, Lord, I pray that we would uh, glean from it. Uh, things that we need to know about how you are working in the lives of your people and in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have soft hearts towards this. I pray against a sense of distractedness or, or, or hard-heartedness, whatever it may be. Uh, God, I pray that we would really um, receive from you this morning and grow in our faith. And uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin uh, with uh, an observation, a comment uh, about marriage that I think will help us to kind of frame uh, what, what we see in this passage. And the comment is this, uh, one of the greatest challenges and one of the greatest benefits is to be able to see things uh, in marriage from your spouse's point of view. Uh, it's a challenge, of course, because uh, it's a different person, right? Same thing with close friendships even. It's just, it's a struggle to put ourselves in the mindset of someone else and it becomes especially difficult when we are in close relationship with that person. Uh, it leads to a lot of conflict, a lot of frustration, uh, but it's also a huge blessing to the extent that we can uh, seek to really understand the, the other person, uh, understand their point of view, understand their assumptions, understand kind of what's motivating them. Uh, it, it can bring a real harmony, a real sense of unity in marriage, which is a, a beautiful thing. In fact, that's God's uh, desire for us. Uh, I say that because there's a similar challenge uh, an even more important challenge, even greater blessing um, in being able to see our lives from God's point of view. Uh, of course, a much greater challenge because he's a lot more different uh, than we are from each other. Uh, but also, it can be a really great uh, blessing. Uh, when it comes to God, he's not just someone that we relate to. He actually is controlling our entire lives, our entire world. And so to the extent that we can understand his point of view, we can have a much greater sense of peace and understanding about what actually is going on in our lives, uh, what he's up to, why things are happening the way that they do. And, and I give this as kind of an introductory framework because I think Peter... And Peter's denial of Jesus, it gives us a fantastic opportunity to see this dynamic at work, to see uh, what it looks like from Peter's point of view, like what happened, why it happened. Uh, but then also, we're going to spend more time, what is God doing in this situation? Uh, if Peter could see it from Jesus's point of view, what would he understand better about the whole, about the whole situation? And then from that, we can understand in our lives, what, if we could see it from God's point of view, what is he doing? So... Uh, we're going to just read through it, and then we're going to try to unpack it. We're going to begin in verse 31. This is back uh, during the Last Supper, the last bit of the Last Supper, where uh, Jesus turns his attention to Peter, and uh, Peter has two names, Peter and Simon, so this is what he says. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
So this is the setup, right? This is the boastful, brash declaration uh, from Peter that he's, he's ready. His faith is strong. Whatever's coming, Jesus, I'm ready for it. Uh, Jesus obviously is, is not so sure. Uh, but something we need to realize about uh, what Peter is saying here, just to kind of put ourselves again in his point of view, uh, he, is, he is not uh, necessarily lying here when he says this. <clears throat> he, he's not, I mean, there is a, a sense in which what he's saying is true. He does have some measure of faith. He does have some measure of loyalty to Jesus. He is, in one sense, ready to die. And I say that because when a situation arises, which is going to happen very shortly, when Jesus is arrested, there's only one disciple who does anything to try to stop it. Right? It's not the right thing. Right? Peter takes out his sword. We saw this last week. Starts to try to fight the Romans. Jesus says, it's not the way. But, but what we see there is Peter, he was ready to some extent. Whether, whether they were going to fight him back or whatever it is, he was ready to put his life on the line. Also, we should note that Peter, uh, he is the only one to actually keep following Jesus. When they come and arrest uh, Jesus, we're going to look at that scene uh, in the weeks to come. But when that happens, all of the disciples, everyone who's with Jesus, they leave. They run away. But Peter, he, he follows. So let's jump to the next big section we're going to read. Uh, verse 54. Uh, then they seized him, so they seized Jesus, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So Peter was still there. Uh, he, his faith wasn't as strong as he thought, right? We're going to see there's a big gap, but it's not like he was being disingenuous or totally false. He did really think that he had enough faith to follow Jesus completely and fully. But of course, what happens next uh, shows us that there are big gaps in his uh, uh, self-understanding. So let's, let's read through to the end of, of this sequence. Uh, verse 56, then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So how are we uh, to understand this from Peter's point of view? Well, obviously, in light of the tears, we, we know what Peter thinks of what just happened. These bitter tears are filled with a sense of frustration, a sense of sorrow, a sense of shame, no doubt angry at himself, just can't believe what he, what he just did, right? Must have been one of the, if not the worst day of Peter's life. To, to, to hurt the one that you love, to betray the, the one that you've said you're, you're pledging your life to, to go against everything that you stand for, this, this is just devastating. If you've been in a situation, if you've talked with someone in the situation, you know the heartache that comes with this. I've spoken with uh, men who have ruined their family, ruined their marriage through adultery. And even if it's years later, there's still just an inner sense of turmoil and regret. Obviously, their families are, are dealing with the effects of their actions. But internally, it's very, very difficult to move past that. This, this sense of remorse and brokenness and devastation. For myself, I know I have wept 
bitter tears like Peter is, is, is crying here. When I've hurt the people I love because of my sinful actions and we're in that dark place of realizing, realizing the depth of our sin, realizing how, how what we didn't see and how it hurt others, it brings us to a place of great despair. And we usually begin with ourselves, but then we start to shift a bit. And we think, God, why, why did this have to happen? Why didn't you stop me? Why, why did it have to be this way? Because remember, Peter, he's not like Judas. Judas also betrayed Jesus, but for him, we could say fairly, look, he dug his own grave. I mean, there was a pattern in Judas that led to his actions. Uh, we know that he was stealing from the money bag of the disciples, so there was hidden sin there that was hardening his heart, opening himself up to demonic influence, and then uh, he, he took the initiative to go and see the religious leaders and make a deal and say, I'll betray him if you give me some money. All of that meant that by the time he realized what he had done, it wasn't a surprise in a sense. Uh, you could see why it happened. But Peter... I mean, Peter seems to have been trying to genuinely follow Jesus. He seemed to have been like honestly saying, I, I really, I love you. I want to follow you. I'm there for you. I have faith in you. There doesn't seem to have been any secret sin or false intentions. And still this happened. So you can imagine some of the tears and the bitterness is, oh God, why? Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you keep me from falling? I didn't want this to happen. I was trying to not let this happen. And so we, there probably was a sense of feeling abandoned. The shame and the remorse and the anger, all of that in these kinds of moments, if, if you've experienced this kind of failure or crisis of faith or whatever it is, it, it's the kind of thing that leads uh, some people just to run away from faith. Just to say, I, I, I've sinned too greatly or it's too much shame or whatever it is just to leave and never come back, which is why I think it's really important to understand what this looks like from God's point of view. Not just what it looks like to be in it in the moment from our point of view, but to see what are, God, what are God's purposes in this? What, what is he doing? Now, we have to be careful. You should always be careful of anyone who would say they know exactly what God is doing uh, when he governs the entire universe, right? There's a complexity to that and a complexity to our lives, but... We can, we can see very clearly at least one aspect of one purpose of what God is doing in the lives of his people. In the, and we know that because we see it very clearly in scripture. So, that, so we have two points this morning, but really one main point. And, and I'll say it this way. God's intent is to perfect us. God's intent is to perfect us. I, I, intent, I could have said goal, objective, his plan. What he is doing is he wants to perfect us, make, in, make us more and more morally, spiritually perfect. And uh, there's a few places that we see this, but the one thing we need to understand from the outset is that when I use the word uh, perfect or to be perfect there, uh, I mean it in terms of our sanctification, because there's two ways that the Bible talks about us being perfect. One is our salvation, and one is our sanctification. And uh, the, the first one, salvation, that's something that God does. Jesus did for us, it's done, it's signed, sealed, delivered at the cross. But then the perfecting work, the ongoing work of sanctification, that's something that he continues to do. So let's make sure, we gotta make sure we get this straight. Here's Hebrews, where we can kind of see both of these together. Uh, Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, uh, talking about Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross. 
It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This was the old sacrificial system at the temple. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice the, the two things. He did something, right? He, he sacrificed himself at the cross. So now all who have faith in him, we are perfected, done for all time. That, that can't be changed. And yet we are the same ones who are being sanctified. How does that work? Well, because in the eyes of God, right, legally, spiritually, when we are in Christ, we are now a new creation. Sins washed away, redeemed, totally perfect, totally blameless. But that is uh, something that is not fully realized in our lives. We, we can see this, right? We're still in this world. We're not in heaven yet. And so we are being made perfect. It's like something that God has begun in us that is bearing fruit, but it is a, is a process. And that process is sometimes called, like it's there, sanctification. Um, and it happens, it happens through the activity of God in our lives. Through very often the difficult things, like Peter's going through, that shape us, that bring greater realization, help us to see God more clearly, help us to see ourselves more clearly. And the result is that we become more and more like Jesus, more and more perfect. So here's another uh, part of the New Testament where we see this. James 1, 2, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God is doing. That's what he's doing to Peter. That's what he's doing to us. There's trials, there's difficulties, and the... the the effect is that we become more and more perfect, lacking in nothing. One more, just so we have it crystal clear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 and 4. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, and, and it goes on. What does God want? What is his will? That we would be sanctified. That those of us who have faith in Christ would grow in holiness, grow in grace, grow in our, our strength of character. That is what God is doing. It's very clear that that is what God is doing. The challenge is, is it being done to us. It's hard. And it's also hard to always see clearly that this is in fact what God is doing. So a couple questions. First of all, why, why does God do this? Why does God want to perfect us? Well, the, the big answer, the ultimate answer to everything that God does is that it brings him greater glory, and that is true. But in terms of our relationship, he does it because he loves us. Why does he want to perfect us? Because he loves us. The same reason that we try to affect change in the lives of people that we love. When, when there's someone in our, in our life that, you know, they're, they're doing something or there's a pattern of, of life or a pattern of sin or something that we can tell is going to damage their lives, hurt people. If we love them, we say something. We do something. We have a conversation. Listen, ah, something I've been noticing in your life. I don't know if you've seen it, but it seems like you're, you're working a lot. It seems like your family is, I think, being neglected. I, have you noticed that? I'm just concerned for you. Hey, uh, look, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but... Um, you, you, you kind of struggle with, with anger. Don't get angry, but like you kind of struggle with anger a bit, right? That, those kind of conversations are ones that could bring greater uh, 
conflict, perhaps, between the relationship or difficulty, but you're, we're doing it, why? Because we really love the person. We don't want to see them continue to neglect their family if that's what's happening. We don't want to see them hurt people with their, we, we want them to change. The, the difficulty for us is that we have limited wisdom, which is why those conversations should, should look like that kind of hesitant. I, I think maybe this is what I'm seeing. Not, here's, here's for sure what's happening, like a divine decree. We're not divine. We're, we're limited in understanding our wisdom, but also we're limited in our resources. It's hard, it's hard to affect change in others. We could say it the very best perfect way possible, and yet someone might still be stubborn, might not be willing to change. But for God, there are no limits to either his wisdom or his ability to affect change. And so what we see him doing, we see with Peter. He sees Peter perfectly. He knows where there are gaps. Peter doesn't see it, but he does. And he has every tool at his disposal in terms of trying to bring about the change that needs to happen. So why does he do it? Because he loves it. How does he do it? Um, he does it by any means necessary. And, and I kind of chose those words on, on purpose, the, the, the extreme nature, by, by any means necessary. I think we know that uh, change and healing and growth is often painful. If you've ever been to physio, you know that that is true. I, I hurt my shoulder a couple summers ago not doing anything cool. I just heard my shoulder falling on a pool deck and, uh, and it really hurts. And so uh, people would say to me, you know, you should probably uh, go to physio. And I was like, oh, I don't know, it kind of, maybe I'll wait and see. And so I just would do nothing because it hurts. And the result was that uh, I, it hurt more and more and I couldn't move it. It was immobile and I would tell people stay away because if they came near and bumped it, it would hurt. And eventually someone's like, you really should go to physio. And at physio, they did the thing I didn't want them to do. They made it hurt even more because they moved it oh, and they had to stretch it and do exercises. But of course it was just short-term pain, long-term, right? I, I could move it again. I can do my three sets of five push-ups. We're all good, right? So uh, it is effective. That's, that is what change is. It's always painful. It's always, it's hard the thing about God is that in his toolbox of things that he has to affect change in us is, is everything. Everything in our lives. Every circumstance, every relationship, every internal conflict, everything. And you see him tailoring his perfecting work for each individual person because he knows us perfectly. You can see this in the Bible if you look through even some of the heroes of faith. You can see how God works. So think of Moses, right? Incredible faith. God used in amazing ways, right? Freed the Israelites, huge, huge courage and faith, and yet God was working on Moses. How? Well, one of the ways uh, that I notice is uh, he really worked on Moses when Moses was rejected by the Israelites. Man, that, that bugged Moses a lot. You can understand why. He's been called by God to lead them, and their response is complaining, bickering. They try to usurp his leadership, and he goes to God, what, these people, you sent me to lead them. They're not even listening to me. What's the struggle there? Oh, this is hard. This shouldn't be this hard. God, what's going on? Well, God's working on Moses. He's growing him in his faith. He's allowing this, this difficulty because he loves, he loves Moses. Think of Joseph. Injustice, evil, done against him by his brothers, by Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison. What's, what's going on there? Well, God is working on Joseph. He wants to shape him into a man who can ultimately lead Egypt and honor God at the same time. It's a sanctifying work, a perfecting work that he's doing through this kind of adversity. 
Think of David, King David, lots of ways that God worked in his life. But one of the main ones, kind of the, the one, was the uh, public exposing of his sin. When the prophet came, right, said to him, look, you, here's what you did. You're the man. Adultery, murder, that's on you, David. David was broken, right? Just, just devastated. But it led, what? It led to him pursuing God for forgiveness, for, for mercy. He saw himself more clearly. He saw the grace of God more clearly. It shaped him into a king who could really honor the Lord. God loved David. So we put him through that intense humiliation and hardship all through the Old Testament. Ruth, right, the loss of her husband led to, to growth in faith, to actually the birth of faith and the growth of faith. Esther, the threat of genocide for her people. Incredibly difficult situations. God was at work. These are the kinds of things that God uses. The challenge for us is that it's difficult to see these things in our lives. And we often have preconceived ideas about the extent that God will go to to shape us. If you're a Christian here this morning, you, you probably wouldn't push back. Look, I know I, there's stuff that God needs to work on. I get it. He's going to shape me. He's going to grow me. But very often, God does things and we think to ourselves, well, I didn't think you'd do that. So I think it's helpful for us to look. I want to look at Paul because Paul went through a lot of things, but also in scripture, he reflects on the things that God did and we can see them uh, sort of for, for what they were. So here's the first thing we see in Paul. We see in Paul that the perfecting work of God is always harder than we think it needs to be. So look at 2 Corinthians 1. Here's Paul talking about some of the trials that he went through. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So you can see the, the function there. Why did this happen? Because God wanted him to rely more fully on, on him, not on himself. That, that there was a gap there in Paul's reliance, that his, his, whatever it was, but how did it happen? Well, he was put through something that pushed him to the brink of despair. That, that you could say in a sense here, he was, he was almost suicidal. He felt like death was coming. He despaired of life itself. There is no hope. And I think for many of us, when we find ourselves in those kinds of situations, we think something's gone horribly wrong. Like I must have somehow gotten outside of the will of God. God, God must have removed his blessing from me. I, I don't know what it is, but if it's this hard, it can't be God at work because he would never do this to me. But what we need to understand is that that's our idea. That's from our point of view of what we think is necessary in our lives. God's point of view is something entirely different. And what we can see here, even from someone like Paul, who had incredible faith, incredible favor with God, God, God pushed him and squeezed him Whatever line Paul thought there was, right? Sometimes as Christians, we have this idea, God won't give us more than we can bear. There's this, it's not a real biblical thing, but we think that. Why do we think that? Because, because in our idea, this, this, there's a limit. Can't go, but it's too much. What we see in Paul is God saying, I, I know what the limit is. I know what my goals are. I love you, Paul. I'm gonna push you and squeeze you. Why? Because I want for you to truly rely on me for you to understand when, there is, when you're despairing of life itself, you can trust in the one who raises the dead. Even at the brink of death, there is hope. God knows exactly how far to push us. It's, I would say, always farther than we think. Because if we, if we knew, 
then we, we could just figure it out for ourselves, right? We could calibrate our, our growth regimen. All this, we don't know. Peter didn't know. Peter thought his faith was strong. The other thing about the sanctifying work of God is that it's, it's always longer than we think it should be. Here's a little bit later on in 2 Corinthians. Paul, again, he says, uh, this is his famous sort of part about his weakness and the, the strength of God. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Just think of it. We, we don't know exactly what the thorn of the flesh was. It was clearly demonic in nature, clearly uh, physical in nature to, to some degree. And you can just picture Paul. He comes before the Lord. Please, it's, it's too much. Take it away. What's the answer? Silence. Nothing. For how? We don't know. There's an interval of time. Weeks, months. It's still there, still suffering. And somebody comes back to Jesus, please take this. I can't take it anymore. It goes on longer. Why? Because he, God loves him. God is afflicting him so that he might see the truth. That, that in his weakness, there can be the power of Christ. That whatever strength Paul has is not true strength. That even in the times of, of total weakness, when he's brought to the end of himself, there he there he has access to the power of Christ. It's a revelation that is needed to sustain Paul, the grace of God to sustain him. And what it does is it humbles him. All this good heart work that is accomplished through difficult trials that go on for longer than Paul would think. And as human beings, we often find ourselves in these situations. Right? The illness comes back that we thought was done. And we think to ourselves, how can I do this again? That the relationship that we thought was, was figured out falls apart again. The person that we care about leaves again, whatever it is. And we think, I don't, again, how long? And the answer is, as long as it takes for God to accomplish his perfecting work because he can see things that we can't see because he loves us. Think of Peter. What were the tools that God was using? Well, I think two main things. One, failure, clearly. But also, uh, interestingly, uh, Satan's plans for Peter. Uh, it wasn't a secret. Jesus says right at the outset, here's what's going on, and, and here's what I'm doing. So look again at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So what does Satan want? He wants through this trial, through this failure, at the end of it, Peter to be on one side and Peter's faith to be on the other. That's always what Satan wants. He wants for us to go through some difficulty so that we get to the point of saying, you know what, I just, it's too much. I'm done with God, whatever it is, if he's gonna allow this or I can't understand it and so we're separated from our faith. Satan's like, that's great, that's, that's what I want. What, is, what does Jesus want? Well, interestingly, he doesn't seem to want to spare Peter from this devastating event. He says he's praying for Peter. You would think, right? Peter might be thinking, well, I'd love it if you just pray that that wouldn't happen, that I wouldn't have to go through this. That's how we often pray, right? If you, if you just make it so that there aren't any trials, that would be fantastic. That's not what Jesus prays. He prays for his faith. He prays that as he goes through the trial, that his faith would not fail. 
And it's very clear that Jesus knows that his faith will be preserved because we see in verse uh, 32, right? He says, when, when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. So you're gonna fail, but when you've turned back, when you've repented, there's work for you to do. And this, this is really important uh, because it gives insight into that final dramatic uh, part of the sequence where Jesus and Peter lock eyes. They have that look, right? Verse 61, uh, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It's really important that we decide what kind of a look that is. I think a lot of the time we think to ourselves, well, that must have been a pretty reproachful look, especially with the thing that Peter remembers. He remembers, I was good. Jesus said, I'm gonna deny you three times. We probably think to ourselves, the look was, see Peter, I told you. Listen, what, learn something, Peter. I warned you. Why did you let, why did this happen? Right, critical, frustrated, ugh, disgust. Come on, Peter. Gotta be better than this. That's what we often fill in the gaps for, but that's not necessarily the look that Jesus gave him. In fact, I, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that's the exact opposite of the kind of look that Jesus gave him. I think the look he gave him was a look of compassion, a look of love a look of understanding and encouragement. Peter, remember. Don't just remember the part about the rooster. Remember everything that I said to you. Remember, I, I said I would pray for you. I said I would be there with you. I said, Peter, that you would turn back again. Peter, I love you. Peter, even in this moment, when, when everything is, is lost, when you've done the worst thing, I love you, I'm for you, Peter. It's really important we understand in our own heart and mind, come to a, a sense of understanding about what kind of look that is because it has huge bearing on us when we're in that situation. Like, what do you think is on the face of Christ when he looks at you in your failure? When he looks at you in your sin? Is it, is it disgust? Is it like, I can't believe again. Yesterday, you just prayed to me. You said you weren't gonna do this and now you did it again? I think we often put on the, the face of, of God, the face of other people in our life. Because the people around us, they get frustrated with us, right? When we do the same thing over and over, when we fail, when we let them down, it's, we know what happens. We do, it our, we do it to others as well, right? We, we have that look, whether we say it, oh, come on. That's never the sense we get in the Bible. When Jesus looks at us in our failure, he wants us to remember the words that he said to us, just like Peter. Because Jesus said even more things to us, right? He said, listen, I, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He said, nothing can separate uh, us. My love for you is gonna be with you to the end. I'm gonna be with you to the end. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for you. That, that's how much I love you. Even in this, even in your worst moment, I love you, I'm for you. That's the whole, that's the whole thing of the gospel, at the right time, Christ died for sinners, for the ungodly. That's us. And he continues to extend grace. The tough thing is it's hard to receive that grace in those kind of moments. And we see this for Peter. He just, he couldn't. Right? He was looking at Jesus and then he just turns. He runs. He, he weeps bitterly. But that's not the end of Peter's story. Right? Eventually, he experienced the restoration and forgiveness that Jesus was, was talking about. 
And, and it happens, uh, John is the one who records it. If you know the story, beautiful story. I'm not gonna read all of it, but Jesus comes back to him having a meal and he asks him three times, uh, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds each time, I love you, I love you. He knows what he's doing. Here's, here's the last one, just look at this. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. That that was part of the end goal for Jesus. Jesus had work for Peter to do. That this is the thing that we need to grasp. There was, Jesus could see Peter. He could see his faith. He could see all the weaknesses. He knew what he, Peter was called to do, to establish the church to preach the gospel, to be the first one to declare for thousands to come to faith at Pentecost, but he knew there was, there was an insufficient faith. There was a gap between the, the man that Peter thought he was. I'm ready, I'm ready, Lord, whatever it is. Jesus knew you're not ready. So what did he do? He perfected him. He grew him in his faith. How? Through trial. Through an intense betrayal. One of the worst days of Peter's life, and yet the result was that he was a man who was ready to be used. This is what God is doing in all of his children's lives, in our lives. He's perfecting us because he loves us. He's using everything in our lives and he's doing it so that we would be more useful, so that we would be more satisfied, so that our faith would be strong. We'd be closer to the Lord. So what should we do? In, in light of what we see here, our second point uh, we should embrace his perfecting work. We should embrace it. Now, it's one thing to understand it, and hopefully this, this has helped if you're not clear how exactly does God work, why does he work that way, but it's one thing to understand it, another thing to embrace it. There's a lot of people in the church that go through intense trials and come out the other side exactly the same. Why? Because we are very stubborn people. We don't want to change. We don't want to grow. We, we don't see things from God's point of view. And so I think it's helpful if we ask ourselves some questions to try to foster a sense of, of, of softness, of, of willingness to be shaped, of willingness to grow, of participating in what God is doing rather than resisting it. So here's, here's the first question. Um, do, you, do you actually want to be perfected in this way? Just think about the way you see your life, the way you see the activity of God, like, is being more and more like Jesus actually valuable? Is it worth it? Because I think if, if you're like me, there's, I've spent a lot of my life uh, praying prayers that basically are saying, Jesus, please stop messing with my life. You know? I have this idea that everything is pretty much okay. It's going all right. And now this has happened and that has happened and I used to be healthy and now I'm not or I used to have more money and now I don't or everything would be fine and you keep messing with stuff. Can you please stop messing with everything? What's behind that? Well, I, I must think that everything is okay. And yet, is that actually true? Is, is this life, what I have in it, the material possessions I have, even the relationship, is that actually gonna do anything for me in terms of my eternity? My eternal joy, my eternal satisfaction? Do I actually believe what it says in scripture that Jesus is the most satisfying being in the universe. And to the extent that I have faith in him and him alone, and I'm willing to let everything else go, I will actually find that peace, find that joy. Is it actually, do I think it's worth it? Because if I don't, I'm always going to resist what God is doing. I'm always going to try to hang on to the to material things 
that he's trying to, to use to shape me. Another good question, I think, is uh, do you believe that Jesus knows you better than you do? Like, do you think his point of view, what he sees in you, is, is more true? Uh, here's, I think, this might be helpful. Um, think of a sculptor. Uh, I came across, well, look, I don't know for sure if this is a quote from Michelangelo. Uh, I asked uh, the internet, and it wasn't exactly sure. I actually asked ChatGPT. Here's the quote. Um, ChatGPT 3.5 said, uh, it's not sure. Uh, I don't have the money for ChatGPT 4, but maybe it would know. I don't know. But this is something that's generally attributed to Michelangelo, the famous sculptor. It sounds like something he would say, right? And just think of what he says here. He, say, he said this, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It's already there. I have to chisel away the superfluous material. I think it's a helpful picture in terms of what God is doing. We often use that terminology. He's chiseling away, he's honing, he's shaping. But think of the dynamic there. The, the sculpture, the being, right, David, right, in, in the block, David doesn't know what needs to be taken away, but the sculpture does. Why? Because the sculpture can see it. Michelangelo could see in his mind's eye the beauty of the form, and he needs to get rid of all the extra stuff. And the problem with us is, is one, we can't see it. Right? We think we see ourselves clearly like Peter. Everything's great. I'm ready. Just put me into the game. We can't see that we have all this extra stuff. But secondly, we spend a lot of time trying to hold on to the extra rock that isn't necessary. And if we could see things from God's point of view, we would see this is a beautiful work he's doing. It's painful. Right? There's a chisel. It, it, it's hard. He's, he's cutting things away. And yet what, the result is a beautiful work in us a more pure heart, a stronger faith, a deeper sense of understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. And so, and so the question is, are we going to submit to this? Are we eager to see the fruit grow in our lives? A practical help, I think, is that in these times of trial, instead of asking the question why, that tends to be what we do, right? God, why is this happening? Why is this happening? The truth is, we're, he's not going to tell us. He, we, we wouldn't understand, even if he tried to explain the complexity of what he was doing. We know in part, in part, he's at work for our good. He's perfecting us. But a better question is, Lord, what? What do you want me to know? There's always something that he's doing. So in any given situation, even a situation where the other person, let's say, it's, is totally in the wrong. You can see it's obvious. If we have a mindset of, Lord, but what do you have for me in this? Like, you've allowed this to happen. Whatever it is, God, would you give me the humility and, and the, the ears and the eyes to see what you are doing in me? E even if it's like Joseph, done nothing wrong, in prison unjustly. There's a layer at which the right question is, God, what, what are you doing in me? And, and then how should I respond? How can I honor you with my response? How can I seek to, to work with you in terms of the work you're doing, the perfecting work? We know this is difficult. We, we know this is trying. That's the whole point, that it stretches us. But the encouragement from Scripture is that we are not alone in this. And, and the confidence that we can have is that, that God will actually accomplish this. And so here's the, here's the last verse, Philippians 1.6 where Paul writes, I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what God's saying to each of us. It's gonna happen. Like Jesus to, to Peter, look, when this happens, I know what's coming in, I'm praying for you. I'm gonna sustain you. And even when you fail, turn, repent. I've got work for you to do. It's the same word to us. That, that even right now, if you feel just in such like a fragile place, God is with you. He's sustaining you. It's for your good. It's for his glory. And by his grace, it will happen. So let me close in praying that we would take these things to heart and walk them out faithfully. Lord Jesus, I, I do pray that you would help us in this. Lord, the truth of the matter is that this is a struggle for us to accept, for us to submit to. Lord, in our sin, in, in our superficial nature, the, the things of our life that we can see, we just we want to grab onto so tightly. And so whenever trials come, whenever difficulties come, Lord, it, ju it just feels all wrong. And Lord, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just pure injustice done against us. But Lord, I pray that we would see the, the deeper levels of work that you were doing in our own heart, that at, in whatever it is, you are allowing it for our good, for our blessing, so that we might grow in faith. So Jesus, I pray you'd give us the strength and the humility to be shaped in these ways. And I pray, Lord, through this, that we would become people who are very useful, that we are God-honoring, and that we are loving for those around us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.